Welcome to Take Your Stand, the podcast of Here I Stand Ministries. I'm your host, Luke Seibert. Let's explore more of what it means to live out the gospel by clinging to the Word and to one another. Welcome back to our study about translations, and we're continuing what we started last week talking about the King James Bible and how that translation came about, and we begin to see a few things about about that that aren't generally known. What we have to understand it in its political context and social context and everything that was going on, how James had come to the throne, become James I of England, and was thus joined Scotland and England together. And because of Hampton Court and the pressure of trying to unify the nation and the uh, uh, John Reynolds and the others, which were the pure, the um, those who were trying to reform the church, they were they were hoping to have a, a revised translation. So James uses the translation to help bring about both of the, several of these things together, and so he po- appoints this committee of forty-seven Anglican uh, scholars, and to to work, do this work on revising the Bishop's Bible. But they used several different uh, sources. They tr- went back and used uh, Theodore Beza's, a couple of his uh, Greek texts that he had made. Uh, the text, again, just being a collection of manuscripts uh, together into a single document. Used that. They compared it with uh, Tyndale's work, uh, several of the other ones like um, I believe it was Coverdale and, and then, uh, some other ones, even, even the Vulgate. They even used the Vulgate to compare certain passages and <laughs> use that to help inform some of the decisions that were made. There's a lot of detail you, you could go into about who these 47 men were, how they worked in committees. Uh, Adam Nicholson goes into a lot of detail with this in his book, God's Secretaries, and um, does it in a pretty honest way, it seems, of recognizing that these men did have shortcomings. They weren't, they, they weren't perfect. King James definitely wasn't. And then uh, the scholars themselves, uh, they had their shortcomings too. But so he goes into all of that in his book. But for the purposes of our say, that doesn't really matter. We know that humans did copy scripture and God used, men's in, used men in spite of their faults and in spite of their errors. Excuse me. But what we're focusing upon is this production of the, of the Bible itself and then the different editions of the King James. Because... This is one thing that is maybe is not talked about very much is that the the first edition of the King James Bible, it was published in 1611. It was the it had the official stamp of approval. It was published through the the King's printer, and it was um yeah they're trying to be the the new Bible of the people. At the time, the Geneva was remember the Geneva had all these different commentary notes in it that were very Calvinistic or anti-monarchical. Um, and so this was trying to replace it. Didn't take over right away. Took some time, but that was what their hope was. So it was published in 1611. The first edition did. And it a uh, unique thing about the first edition is that it had several italics and marginal notes in it, even. And that's uh, things that are taken out of the King James today, but was there. And um, one one scholar, uh, <clears throat> James. Uh, James White, he was saying that over there were over uh, 8,000 of these different marginal notes or places of italic of recognizing, hey, there are some parts that the, the, scholar, the translators were saying, there are some variant readings here. 
We're, we're not entirely sure that this is the exact way to translate or maybe a spelling. Uh, very minor things. Nothing dealing with uh, doctrinal. That's one of the amazing things about all these different uh, the differences between the manuscripts that can be blown way out of proportion. The, they're uh, free which scholar it is, but one person I was reading, and they said, several people point this out, actually, that there is no doctrine, doctrine at stake in the differences. It's a, maybe a word order, maybe a word added, maybe a word taken away, maybe a spelling. Um, there's different minor things like that, maybe a letter missing, something very small and insignificant, like in terms of understanding the meaning of the text. So we have such a high degree of certainty of what the original autographs were. Um, the, 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 there are differences in the manuscripts. And so people may say, oh, there's this many number or that, and it seems like it's an overwhelming number. And when you really stop and consider what the differences are, it's very minuscule and quite amazing to think that you know, for over a thousand years, when there was no printing press, everything was being done by hand. And there's, there's such degree of um, accuracy and consistency but um, that as a side, kind of a side point, just going on the rabbit trail there. But we'll come back to that in a future episode. <clears throat> and uh, and the, one of the things that that I wanted to point out here was that this was also a translation into the into the language of the people. And they talk about the the uh, authors of the King James, uh, to the translators of the King James Bible, excuse me, in their preface in the 1611, which is an extremely long preface. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read a good portion of it. They talk about translating into the vulgar tongue. And vulgar, not at that time, not meaning, uh, you know, uncouth or just, or, or um, <clears throat> something bad. It was just meaning the language of the common person. And, um, and uh, this is the, well, this is something that comes repeatedly throughout the, the preface. And it, one part they say without translation into the uh, vulgar tongue the the uh, unlearned are like uh, children at Jacob's well which was which was deep without a bucket or something or something to draw with it's saying that, that it's inaccessible yeah they may have a bible but if it's not in the language of the common people people who don't have the high uh, college education learning all these different languages and these things about how to look at the text, the text technically and the stuff, uh, it doesn't no good. It's like a well that's deep with, but they don't have anything to get the water with. Um, and then they go on to to say this: What can be more av uh, What can be more um, available there too? The, the purpose of having people understand, uh, than to have than to deliver God's God's book unto God's people. In a tongue which they understand. I mean, this is from the preface of the 1611 edition of the King James. That this is just another step in this chain that we are following, of God raising up men who recognize God's word has to be in the language of the people in a way that they can understand. And to us, the King James seems uh, today it sounds like an not a different language, but a very uh, a very old form of it, and it's hard to understand the different sentence structure and some of the words have changed. That wasn't what was going on at that time. It was into the language of the common people so that they could understand. And this is just, again, just carrying on what we've been seeing with so many translations so far. And that, you know, it was not relatively all that long ago in the history of this 
uh, of the English Bible that Tyndale gave his life for that very purpose, that he was burned at the stake for it. And now there is a translation that is uh, initiated by the king to be read by all the people of England that uh, Lord had completely reversed the attitude of the situation going on there in England. And uh, a couple things I wanted to, to point out uh, as, we, as we're moving on here. Um, that there were, so we'd only talked about the first edition. There were eventually a total of, of five editions. Um, I had that written down here. Uh, maybe if I can find it. Uh, I'll get, yeah, I think it's down here in a minute. But, um, so it ended up being, uh, I think, a total of five editions. Yeah, here it is. Of, of the King James that were translated, uh, that were published. So you had 1611, then you had 1629. 1638 and 1762 as well as 1769 and each of these uh, editions it wasn't a retranslation they were just going back and looking at hey this part we didn't have right there's the um the famous he she bible where one pl one particular place i think it's one of the prophets where it says he went to this and one publishing printing said he another public printing of well, the same edition but this different printing said she it was going back correcting that and typesetting different there's some things like that updating some of the notes and it, it goes on and um that the 17 i'm sorry the 1769 edition is what most people have today when it when they talk about having a king james bible which is quite removed uh, from the 1611 in terms of time you know you're talking over 150 years which is significant to, to, to recognize we almost Sometimes can treat the King James as this official sanctioned translation that came about and that was done and it was complete and finished and that's what we have today. Well, no, it had over a period of over 150 years. It, that the King James that we have today was still being revised and edited and, and corrected. That there were had made some mistakes because they were fallible men. Again, none of those mistakes affecting doctrine or, or teaching us. Um, uh, teaching us wrongly, there were there were small minor things, but trying to go back and correct it to make it as best as we, best as they could, and so I wanted to point that out. And just that's really when when he's come to with King James is that we recognize it has as a translation that has been mightily used by God for four hundred years, which is incredible, and it's still being used, and as great a translation as it is with the, the manuscripts that they had, but recognize that it's not perfect that's not god's final word to us in english that yeah there were some things about the circumstances that brought about the king james that uh, weren't the best um there's some we can discuss about the manuscript trans uh basis for it uh there were anglicans who were uh translating it which nothing wrong with anglicans <laughs> I, I do respect their emphasis um upon our prayer with thomas cranmer and even some of the, the newer things I'm, I'm seeing coming out with uh, City of Light, for example, that uh, music group, their songs are, many of them that I've listened to are, are very spiritually sound. So I'm not, not bashing Anglicans here. Just uh, one thing, I mean, more Baptist circles, we tend to, sometimes they can almost have the idea that Baptists are almost a true church. And that's not, not entirely true. That Yes, Baptists are part of it, but... There are many, God has his, has his church spread out and 
many different denominations that we've set up ourselves. But just wanted to point out this has been a great translation that the Lord has used. He has blessed it, and he still continues to bless the, the reading and preaching of his word using the King James. But just wanted to be realistic about how it came about, um, and they recognize that the, yeah, they, the translators recognized the importance of getting the Bible into the language of the common people for the purpose so that they can best understand it themselves. They recognized that. They also recognized that uh, they didn't have things perfect. They talk about that in the, the preface uh, to the 1611 edition there and how over the next 150 years, a little more, they went about revising it to the form of the King James that we have today. So, yeah, that's uh, just about how we got the King James Bible that uh, we use in many churches today. And that's one of the translations we use in, in a church I'm a part of and some other churches I've been a part of in the past, we've used that. But mm. So now we're getting to territory that we, we uh, know. But there's still a lot more to cover in the history of um, how we got the Bible and that we're still talking at this point, 1611, 1700s is where we're talking about. And there's been a lot of discoveries since then. They're not radical. And that's why I do need to emphasize that, that there are some amazing discoveries that have happened. Uh, I wouldn't say breakthroughs, but pretty just amazing uh, stories how God has led to the discovery of certain manuscripts, uh, how we have greater faith and certainty that the manuscripts we have are true they are authentic um, a lot of things I'm excited about getting into and then of course the, the modern translations that, that we use today um, but it's nothing earth shattering it hasn't it does it doesn't change our faith <clears throat> in terms of what we believe it's just getting it into uh, uh, maybe a higher degree of certainty of what the original autographs said and then get into the language of the people but we'll get into all that in the weeks to come and uh, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you as well. So here on the uh, uh, part, the second part of the uh, podcast, I want to talk about a book I just uh, finished up. It's Men and Women in the Church, a uh, short biblical practical introduction. And that's by Kevin DeYoung. And it's talking about the, this, this concept or the doctrine, I guess you could say, of complementarianism. And he does a really good job with uh, going through here and discussing men and women's roles as ordained by God, beginning in creation, and then shaping and then showing how several New Testament passages talk about how that's, the differences are played out in church life today. And to be honest, I started reading this and I'm like, okay, good, but it's more just kind of exposition of these different texts. And I wasn't really seeing the application for the church. I wasn't seeing anything breakthrough. But uh, as the book continued on, uh, I felt like he ha I really became to begin to appreciate his approach as he pointed out several things. One, he says that uh, he pointed back to a lot of to men. He says we have uh, abdicated our responsibilities and a lot of times we've left the women to to take up the slack. And when it comes to the leadership in the church, it wasn't. He, and um, he says in there something about well, that. We, let's not make the heartbeat of, of our cry. Women sit down when it should be men stand up. He points out that if the men step up to the, to the role that God has prepared for us as, as uh, pastors, overseers, uh, elders, and then deacons, <clears throat> that a lot will be taken care of. And not so much as telling women, hey, you can't do this, you can't do this. He goes through the book and talking about and affirming 
look at these things that women can do and how valuable their service is. And his point about the differences being a thing of beauty because it reflects God's original design. And I really appreciate his approach. Um, it's not a complete, uh, I guess maybe you could say manual reference work if you just want to look through for like a list of what men and women can't do. But it's really helping us get a biblical focus of what are the differences between men and women's roles in general, not just specifically in the church, but talking about in general of uh, as applies to just who we are as created beings, men in the image of God, uh, going to the, to the marriage, and then eventually he, talk, he brings it into the church. And he's a, a really excellent uh, second part to the book. Um, he's divided the two parts, but the second part there being some application and questions, and kind of questions and answers section. And I thought it was really well done. So this was not a book that I'd say was, was earth-shattering for, for per se, but I felt like it was a succinct, a succinct way of presenting this biblical doctrine in a very clear way that helped us have the right attitude and also recognize what God's original design was. So I really appreciated his approach and um, would recommend if someone was kind of wrestling with this whole complementarian, egalitarian debate or... Um, Maybe they maybe they are complementarian, but we're trying to see, okay, what is the biblical basis for it? Like, I know this is what we're supposed to be, but what's really the biblical basis for it? This is a pretty uh, a book that I would recommend for that. So, uh, again, that's Men and Women in the Church by Kevin DeYoung, and I'll have the link there in the, the show notes again. But I thank people for listening to the podcast. Uh, I'm enjoying going through here and sharing uh, these things I've been studying uh, over the past several years, on, on and off. It's not like been a constant thing, but... So I get I get excited about sharing, and especially as we're getting into here with um, some of these the, the great codexes uh, like codices uh, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and then we're getting into the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's just could be a lot of really fascinating stuff. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you. But uh, until the next podcast, uh, read the Word and take your stand. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope it was an encouragement and a blessing. To find out more information about Here I Stand Ministries check out hisministries.com. Scripture quotations are from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, copyright 1971-1995 by the Lockman Foundation, used by permission, all rights reserved.